Today's reading will be taken from 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, verse 3. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Brilliant, Liz. Thank you very much for reading. Let me add my welcome. Uh, my name's uh, Matt Fuller. Very good to see you. Let's, let's pray as we begin together. Our Father, even in what we've just read, your word is powerful to give new life. Uh, it's done that for many of us here. It's caused us to be born again, which is an extraordinary power. Uh, and so we pray as you command us here that we would crave more of your word so that we know more of you and therefore have the strength to live for you this day, this week, in this world for the praise of your name. Amen. Uh, I used to be a school teacher, whatever it was, a dozen, 15 years ago now, a history teacher. And um, one of the lessons I really enjoyed teaching, I'm proud of, I don't know about that, but uh, certainly enjoyed teaching, was a lesson on Henry V and um, and 12-year-old boys at this stage of my teaching career, uh, Henry V. So they're generally going to love it, battles, kings, bloodshed, that's good if you're 12 and a boy. Um, but uh, one of the things I did in that was, uh, this is about 96, and so not uh, Independence Day. Do you remember the Will Smith film that sort of made his career, took, you know, Hundreds of millions, etc. That was on at the uh, that had just come through the box office and was just out on VHS as uh, as we like to watch. Um, and so I showed them from that just a little clip. There's a there's a clip where the president in that film addresses his troops. He's the president of the U.S. Bill Pullman, but somehow that morphs into president of the world. It's a mistake sometimes made. The um, <laughs> very sorry, very sorry. Very sorry. Cheap, very sorry. But um, uh, in that film, he kind of is president of the world, and he addresses his troops before they go off and fight the aliens, uh, as you do. And it's quite a nice speech, I guess, all in all. So I'd show that, you know, about five minutes of that. And then I'd show them the Branner 1989, Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech, and say, which is better? And they'd say, oh, the Shakespeare one, it's miles better speech. And I'd walk out of the classroom thinking, my work here is done. <laughs> I'm not even an English teacher. Have that for free, English department. (laughs) My work here is done. Because, of course, it is a a remarkable speech. And uh, the climax of it, uh, well known. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall make him gentle. And gentlemen abed in England shall consider themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap whilst those who hear should speak 
that fought with me upon St. Crispin's Day. And, um, you know, the desks are all banged and um, very good. Now, that is, of course, inherently a very rousing speech and uh, quite marvellous Shakespeare at his best. But also, of course, that part of the appeal of that is, um, well, we're a band of brothers. It doesn't matter how vile you've been, says the king. It doesn't matter how lowly your status. This day transform you. This day shall gentle your condition. You become my brother because we fight alongside one another. So it creates it. There's a unity of purpose, a unity of mind that is very wonderful. And of course, one or two here, those who have uh, fought in the military, you know that. They're the sort of the comradeship of being brothers in arms is very strong and, uh, and unites you together. It creates a deeper bond. And um, there's a sense in which uh, this little section of 1 Peter, it's a bit of an Agincourt speech from Jesus. He's saying, for if you come and become one of mine, if you're a Christian with me, you are my brother. doesn't matter how vile you've been in your past, you're my brother. And actually that creates a wonderful camaraderie to be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It can create a magnificent bond, which is a real delight to share together. It's very simple, really, what Paul, uh, excuse me, what Peter is saying here. In the middle, or the end of verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. It's the strongest, a number of Greek verbs for love. I mean, you can overplay this, but it's the strongest Agapaho, um, this is a determined love, a volitional love, a sacrificial love, you could put it in those terms, but it's a, it's a resolution to live this way. Peter's not saying, hey, look, gather together on Sunday morning, have a nice group hug, look around, smile, it'll cost you nothing, and then walk away again. It's easy, you'll feel good, you'll have nice warm, have warm thoughts towards the person next to you, you could do that now. Have warm thoughts towards, no, a love that costs is what Peter's talking about here. Love so that it costs you. Love so you go without. Love deeply from the heart. That's heart. It's easy to love when it doesn't cost. That's, you know, if you have plenty of time, plenty of money to give her those things, it's not that hard. You know, on a national level, it's it's quite easy to get on well with, with one another when the national economy is doing well and there's plenty. When there's times of austerity, you know, people start to snipe at one another. I may have said before, I'm banned from watching Question Time on a Thursday night. I get agitated uh, when I watch Question Time. But um, happily, this Thursday night, I got in quite late. My wife was asleep in bed, so I watched it. <laughs> There's my confession. And uh, as, uh, this is why I was banned, because I watched it and I became agitated and started talking to the screen. <laughs> but one of the, it's just uh, one of those moments that there's debate, of course, about the economy, what's going on in the economy. And uh, one of the, uh, the people in the audience said, what, what, I don't, leave your politics aside, it just is, this is not a political point. What, what the people in power need to realise is, that we just can't take any more austerity. We cannot take any more. And people are going to get angry and there's going to be violence because unless they do something, that was quite a vague political program. Um, but of course, and the rest of the audience, <laughs> rapturous applause at that point. You think, oh, you fool, what are you going to do? You know. um, 
violent. We're just going to get violent because we don't like our standard of living shrinking back a little bit. And some people are very wealthy and, and those people ought to pay, but not me. I don't, I want the economy to, to be sorted out, but I don't want it to affect me, just them. And all of a sudden getting on is a little harder to do. We'll be violent. We'll take to the streets, you know. I don't suppose she would. She looked very middle class and nice. I don't suppose she would. It's much harder to love, to get on well, when it costs. Peter's saying love deeply. Love deeply from the heart. Now, that is to be the mark of the church. And of course, some here would say, I have little doubt, some here would say, yeah, I know that. I've been loved wonderfully by people here. Others would say, my experience has been a bit disappointing. Of course, we vary, because sometimes it goes right, sometimes it goes wrong. But in the last six weeks, there have been two people who come along to church. I wouldn't could describe themselves as Christians. I said, oh, you know, who do you know? What's brought you here? To be honest, I know her, and I look at her friendships, and I'm jealous. Because her friends come through for her financially with time. Or, or, or another guy, I, I'm here because, do, do, do you know what? Uh, I get let down by my mates and I look at him and when he's in trouble, they, they help him out. So I want to, I want to, to be honest, I'm not interested in becoming a Christian. I just want friends like him. Well, yeah, it's a start. Um, <laughs> it's a start. Just sometimes it goes very well. Sometimes not so well. I mean, we'd have our different experiences. But there is to be the mark of the church that we would love one another deeply from the heart. How do we go about that? Well, two things. We need to know what God has done, and we need to know what we must do. Forgive the grammar. I think the grammar is incorrect. I don't know how that happened. We need to know what God has done. That's not a question. Uh, we need to know what God has done. Then we need to know what we must do. But first then, what has God done? He's done two things. This command then, uh, verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart, it, it it's surrounded by two descriptions of what has taken place. So the way to love one another deeply from the heart is to know these two things. Uh, beforehand, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, love one another. And the second comes after it, love one another for because you've been born again by an imperishable seed. Let me try and summarize then. You love one another deeply. Why? What has got two things? You've been purified by obedience and you've got a seed of hope within you. That's the, those are the two statements upon which the command, the imperative rests. Okay, love one another deeply from the heart. How? You purify, you've been purified by obedience. You've got a seed of hope within you. Okay, let's take those two. First then, you've been purified by obedience. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. A long phrase. Essentially, it's just another way of saying, now you've put your faith in the gospel. It's an unusual way of saying that, but it's just another way of saying it. So, um, obeying the truth for Peter is another way of saying trusting the gospel. So the, the easiest little cross-reference, if you want one, will be um, in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 17. If you if you're a Christian, if you obey the gospel of God, 
and you're not a Christian if you disobey the gospel of God. Because biblically speaking, obedience and faith are two sides of the same coin. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust that he's died in your place, he's taken punishment for you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at the same time you're saying, I'll obey him as my Lord. I believe that that is true, and I'm committing myself to bow the knee in submission to him this day and for the rest of my life. The two sides are the same coin. And Peter is just express, um, is focusing upon the, uh, the former here. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. All he's saying is, when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you say, I will obey him, you bring yourself under his lordship and his work upon the cross of washing you clean from your sin, that becomes yours. So you become a Christian is a, a way of putting it. But you see how the logic works at verse 22. Now you've purified yourselves by trusting the gospel, trusting in Jesus Christ. You have sincere love for your brothers. So love one another deeply. Peter said, look, I'm not giving you an impossible command here to love one another deeply. When you became a Christian, if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, God did something in you. He washed you clean and he put into you a sincere love for your brothers and sisters. He's put that into you. Now, now you can love one another in this sort of way. It's a slightly unpopular point, but essentially Peter's saying, the only way you can love with this sort of depth, supernaturally, is if God has changed you. Because it's not natural to love in a way that costs you. It's not natural to love deeply from the heart, not unless you get something back from it. Now, people can protest. Look, there are plenty of people throughout history who have not been Christians and who have been wonderfully loving. And of course, that is true. There are always exceptions. Every culture generation has its hero. Now, there will always be wonderfully, praise God for them, but there will always be wonderfully a, a Nelson Mandela with a remarkable capacity to forgive. A Gandhi with a remarkable capacity to, to love his enemies. That's true. But they're isolated individuals. What Peter is describing is something that should be true of all Christians. So every generation has its individual moral heroes, the pinnacles. Peter is saying this sort of love should be true of everyone who's a Christian. Not just heroes here and there, but a whole group of people. Very different. And if some of you would have seen this, seen it here, but seen stark examples Think of some of our mission partners that we're in partnership with and support. Some would have been out to the Jerusalem Alliance Church in Jerusalem. And you can stand there in a row with a man born a Muslim, a man born uh, uh, an Orthodox Jew, and see them holding hands and singing God's praises together because they've become Christians. They love one another deeply despite cultural hostility. Well, we speak to Louis Lambrecht teaching in... Um, in Rwanda at a theological college in Kigali, who say, yeah, we have, we have Tutsis and Hutus, who a generation, not even a generation ago, 15 years ago, were at war with one another, now sitting and praying together and loving one another, their families supporting one another in need. Oh, yeah, that happens. You don't hear of them. They're not the moral heroes of their generations. But this happens. I'm not asking you for something beyond you, says Peter. You have been purified when you obey the gospel. You have been given a love. So love one another deeply. 
from the heart. You've been purified by obedience. And the second is similar. The second uh, uh, statement that supports this in, this command comes after it, but you've got a seed of hope within you, is the second, verse 23. Love one another deeply from the heart. How or why? Verse 23, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. See, here's the other thing that God has done. He's given us new birth. If you hear a few weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us new birth into what? Into a living hope. It was there. God has given us new birth into, well, here again, the emphasis is upon permanence. Remember, it's worth flicking back, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 3, new birth into a living hope. Verse 4, new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, fade. You can't lose this thing. And in chapter 2, verse 23, the emphasis is the same. You've been born again, not of perishable, but imperishable. If you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, God planted into you a seed of hope through his word. And you cannot stop that growing. I mean, you could stymie it, you can stunt it, but you can't stop it from growing. It's imperishable. And eventually it'll grow into eternity, last forever. Uh, We recently moved. In our old house, we had this ridiculous jasmine plant. I don't know how many years it had been there. It was enormous. And uh, it covered the whole of the back wall and was kind of nice, but I didn't know what to do with it. And so it just sort of took over and invaded the wall, you know, pulled out all the cement. Eventually it pulled down the wall. So one day I had to declare war upon this thing. And um, pretty though it was, I just attacked, 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 attacked. And I took it all the way down to the stump. It had a big old stump and goodness knows how many roots. But um, I don't know how to do such things with my father. I got this poison, I think it's poison essentially, you drill a hole into the stump and pour in the poison. <laughs> um, uh, this, this thing just, you know, that's it, that's it, you're done, you're over. But it wasn't. It just kept popping up. Obviously it had a root over there that was saying, well, you've killed me here, but I'm coming up over there. And you sort of deal with that when it would come up over there. You go away for a two-week holiday, the whole, the whole house was taken over again. I started, I mean, started to invade my dreams. I'd wake, you know, I'd, I'd have nightmares about these roots coming through the windows and attacking us in the night. This plant, so we had to move. That wasn't, we did move. That wasn't the reason we moved. But, um, you just could not stop this thing from growing. Verse 23, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God is in, if you're a Christian, God has put a seed of hope in you that will grow. It'll grow. You cannot stop this thing from growing. That's the point of the quote from Isaiah 2 in verse 24. Do you see this, this permanent hope? All men are like grass, all their glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God's word is imperishable. It creates a hope. It cannot be destroyed. It will last eternally. Everything else will fade. So the wonderful, magnificent glory of Chelsea Football Club will fade. And the glory of Mark Zuckerberg will fade. And the glory of your bodies is fading, I'm afraid, and will fade. 
It'll all go. But the word of God creates a hope that can never fade. It's imperishable. You've been born again into that word, and so you will stand forever. Now, question. Let's back up to just try and get this, try and get this clear in our minds. How does this seed of hope, I've defined it there, but how does this seed of hope, how does it help us love from the heart? Do you see, I mean, because Peter said, love one another deeply from the heart because you've been born again of this imperishable seed, which gives great hope. How does that work? How does having hope within us help us to love deeply from the heart? And I think the answer is this. When you have the hope of eternity, it allows you to pay the cost of love. When you have the hope of eternity, you're willing to love deeply even when it costs you. If you have the hope of eternity, you can put aside selfishness. You can do that because you have that hope. Let me just suggest how this might pan out in a few areas. Suggestions, just suggestions, okay? It might look a bit like this. How do we use our time? Well, we'd like to paint our house or we'd like to paint the lounge in our house, but we don't because we go around and and um, take a meal to the family that's struggling because they've just got a newborn baby in their house. And we're able to do that. It's not a big thing. But we're able to do that because our hope is not in the glory of our lounge, but it's in the hope of eternity. So we think, well, I'd like to get that done, but it's all right. It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not that big a deal. Or at the end of a long day, a long week, really what we want to do is just go home and veg out. But we don't. We go and visit someone in hospital who would be greatly encouraged by our visit because our hope is not in relaxation that we can have here and now, but our hope is in eternity. So having the hope of the future will help us pay the cost now because we don't need it all now. So we use our time. What about... Uh, how we use our resources. Some, some here at church, are able to give away money to others. Not many of you know all about these things. They kind of go around on in the background. But some just give loans or just give sums of money to those who are struggling uh, for a season. Some will just give away of their resources. Some will give away their cars to people who need a new car. How are they able to do that? Well, because... They're not scared that they won't have enough resources. Well, if I give away this thousand pounds, what will happen? Maybe we won't have enough to survive. If we give away the car, well, that's money that they're able to give away because they have hope. They've got hope in God. And so hope in the future means you can be generous now because you don't think you have to protect it all for yourself. So you can give time, resources. Location, I think, is the hardest one of all. Very hard for many uh, located in a church such as ours. But some, for some people, where possible, again, these are suggestions, for some people where possible, they, they commit to stick around in one location and invest in a group of people because their hope is not in having the bigger house, the better job, the bigger garden. Their hope is in heaven. Their hope is in eternity. And because of that, they can pay the cost now. Do you see? Do you see, when you have the seed of hope within you and you know what you're looking forward to, you can give now of your time, of your resources, 
of your ambitions. You can give because you don't need to protect them because you've got a hope of something better. Love deeply from the heart because God has put hope within you. God has put hope of heaven within you, a hope of eternity. To live this way, it's very striking if we can do it. Uh, not many would be acquainted with uh, Aristides. He's the, an Athenian philosopher of the second century, um, uh, popular, popular with the emperors. He became a Christian in the second century, and uh, he wrote something to describe why he became a Christian. It's quite a striking little thing. Let me read it, uh, a section of it briefly. So he's a philosopher of the second century, Aristides. Why did you? I became a Christian. Why? Because I looked at them that follow the, the one they call Jesus, and they love one another. So the one who has distributes liberally to those who have not. They call themselves brothers, not after the flesh, but because they're brothers of Jesus. If they hear of any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, they provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man that is needy and poor, and they have abundance of, and sorry, and they do not have abundance of necessaries, then they fast for two or three days so that they may supply the needy with their food. He says, I saw that and thought that's, that's supernatural. I don't see that anywhere else that people would go without food for two days in order to give it to oh, That's amazing. Not just the moral heroes, not just the one or two who, who are able to do that, just a whole group of people. Amazing. Wouldn't it be great to be part of a group like that? Well, we can be. We are. Sometimes it works. We need to know what God has done. You've been purified by obedience. He's put a seed of hope within you. More briefly, what do we do in response? What do we have to do? Well, again, there's two things. Get rid of selfish motives. I'm not sure that's the right word. Get rid of selfish emotions and then crave more of the Lord's goodness is the other. Let's look at them briefly in turn. They come in verse two, uh, chapter 2. The first then, Therefore, given that this word of God that stands forever has been preached to you and created a hope within you, therefore, what? First, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Get rid of your selfish emotions. Throw them off. Get rid of them. If you do some exercise, you go for a run, you go to the gym, and uh, you may be, you may glow when you finish your exercise. I am a sweaty mess, and I want to get in the shower, and I peel these things off, and they, th- I throw them at the wall, and they stick, and eventually they fall. Um, and I have a shower, and I'm clean. Do I want to put them back on again? I do not. I do not. Though I've thrown them off, and I'm not putting them back on. Those would be unpleasant, repellent when you're clean to put them back on. Of course, Peter's saying you have been purified, you've been washed by obeying the gospel. Don't put these, don't put those things back on. They're foul. It's entirely inappropriate. Haven't got time for all of them, but briefly, malice. Get rid of malice, throw it off. What's malice? An intention to harm someone else to think the worst of someone else. So let me ask you, is there anyone even here that you tend to think badly of? Their name comes up in conversation. And somewhere in your subconscious, you think to yourself, 
Mm. I hope we all agree that he's not very nice. I hope we can all agree together. I'd feel much better if we all have a little dig at him. I mean, it may not be, but um, that's malice, I guess, something along that. You, you want someone else to suffer, throw it off. Deceit, throw it off. Why? Because it ruins relationships. We have a, a, a naff little catechism in our house. Uh, there's a lie told. Why don't we like lies? Because lying breaks relationships. That's right. Um, because it does. Because if you lie to me, I can't trust you. I don't know why, whether what you're telling me is true. Uh, I don't know how seriously to take you. Our relationship is never going to be good. If you lie to me, throw it off. Throw off malice, throw off deceit, throw off, well, throw off envy, one last one. Get rid of it. When you're unable to enjoy other people because, well, you, you envy their, I don't know, lifestyle, their time. They just seem to have so much time. Your life is so stressful. It's so, 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 excuse me, so straightforward for them. You start to envy. Well, that's terrible. It, again, you can't get on with someone you envy, and envy also eats you up from inside. It's the worst of all things in many ways. Remember the, uh, the classic, uh, classic discourse on envy? You know, Amadeus, remember um, the film Amadeus? The play's even worse. Remember the film Amadeus? That's years ago now. Salieri, he's very good. He's very good as a composer. But he hates Mozart. Why? Because Mozart's a genius. And he just can't bear the fact that Mozart is better than him. And so he tries to ruin his reputation, ruin his access at the uh, Austrian court. He drives him to, to death by making him overwork. He kills him because of his envy. I mean, envy is a miserable thing. And Salieri ends up miserable too. It's a miserable film. Got eight Oscars. Uh, something like that. Certainly nominated for them. Envy's miserable. Now, we're not going to do that. But gentle envy is more common. Getting gentle envy, they they don't know the stresses that we know. They don't know the financial stresses we know. They don't know the time stresses that we know. Their life is... So you envy them. It's hard to get on very well with someone you envy because you're always thinking negatively about them. Throw it off. Throw it off, says Peter. For goodness sake, get rid of it. Pray for them. It's one practical thing. It's hard to envy someone you pray for. There's a whole list there, isn't it? Throw off these selfish actions or motives. But alongside that, crave more of the Lord's goodness. It's the second thing we have to do. Crave more of the Lord's goodness. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Crave like, well, hold on a minute. What is the milk? Crave pure spiritual milk. There's a command, crave milk. Now, I take it's not literal. It says it's spiritual milk. What is spiritual milk? Well, the clues are here. Um, uh, the first is that we're to crave like newborn babies. And Peter's just said, you've been born again by the word of God. So I think he's saying the word of God is spiritual milk. What helps us crave it, verse 3, is you've tasted that the Lord is good. So I think it probably means that spiritual milk 
is the word of God that reminds us that God is good. That's what the spiritual milk is. Crave it. We need, if we're going to throw off all these unworthy actions, habits, behaviors, we need to be reminded in the scriptures, God's word, that he's good. We can't do it on our own. Let me put it this way. Uh, Yesterday morning, I watched uh, my wife, Kerry, whip up a pancake mix. And she was taking a long time, and uh, I observed this after a while of reading the paper. And um, uh, she was whipping up a pancake mix and then started complaining, oh, this is taking ages, oh, this is really lumpy. And, of course, at that point, I could have stepped in and said, um, uh, but I had a better idea. We'll get out the electric whisk. And, of course, you're shoving the electric whisk, and it's done. Lump's gone, mixture ready. Brilliant, brilliant. And it's a bit like that here. We could try and just throw off all these things on our own, and it's just quite hard work and takes a lot of time to do it. But the word of God is the electric whisk. You put it in, it's much easier. Happens faster. Because when we remind ourselves in the word of God that God is good, that he is relentlessly kind. That he is ongoingly forgiving, that he is unfailingly generous. When we remember those things, it's just easier to put aside our own character flaws because we can trust him. No longer envying, but knowing that the Lord is good. Okay, yeah, their life might be a bit more straightforward, but the Lord has been good to me. He's a wonderful God. I don't envy him. It's much easier to throw these things off when you know the goodness of God. Last thought on this. It's a command, verse 2, to crave the word of God. Now what do you do with that? Peter says, I command you, long for God's word so that you know the goodness of God. Crave it. Desire it. Have an intense personal longing for it course it's easy to say um i don't feel like that i don't i don't feel that way to be honest and peter comes along and says crave it crave it like newborn babies now some will know what that's like some will know vividly what that's like right now a newborn baby how do they ask for milk can i have some milk no All right, I'll ask again in half an hour. (laughs) They're just persistent, aren't they? They will not give up until they get what they want. I will not give up. I mean, that's not the logical thing. They're not saying this. I'm just going to go where until you give me what I want. But that is essentially what's going on in their minds. I'm just going to cry and cry and cry until I get my milk. And Peter's saying, yeah, be like that. Don't give up until you've got the word of God intensely long for it. Yeah, but the problem is it's just not satisfying in the same way milk works on the baby. They cry and on a good night I shove the bottle in or the feed them and um uh and after you know twenty minutes or so they say, Oh thank you very much. There's a burp and they sleep and it's wonderful. It was very straightforward. It isn't really like that when I okay, I want to put aside my envy, so I come to the Bible, I read it, I well, the metaphor doesn't work, does it? But I don't, I'm not instantly satisfied and go, brilliant, I'm sated now, thank you very much. It doesn't, 
just emotionally, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't quite work. But that's why he says, verse 3, I find verse 3 wonderfully comforting or encouraging. Like newborn cravies, babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted the Lord is good, you do know that, don't you? Says Peter. Says you do know that he's good. You, you do know his loving providence, his watch over your life. You've seen that work out. You do know his forgiveness, even though you don't deserve it. You do know that he's good. And you remember sometimes that really hits you, his goodness, and you think, oh, the Lord, he's good. He's really good to me. He's been very kind to me in Jesus Christ. You do know that. Well, remember that. Crave that, what it was like, and just keep going on the word of God until you're refreshed again. Don't give up too quickly. Crave it. Yeah. One of my favourite observations on this uh, is a man called Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan preacher in the 17th century. And he, very, he put it quite simply to my mind. If we don't, he's talking about preaching, but if we don't meditate upon a sermon, that's like eating a great meal but failing to digest it. And too often we're spiritual bulimics. It's a vivid picture, isn't it? He says, so often I'll hear, I'll hear a sermon, it doesn't have to be a sermon, I'll, I'll, I'll read my Bible, and it's very wonderful. There is a great meal there. But I'll just go, yeah, that's good, and I'm on to the next thing. It does me no good. The most wonderful meal is laid out in front of me, but it does my body no good. Because I'll take it in, but I'll vomit it back out again, and it, nothing goes into me, no nutrients enter me. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? So you need to meditate. You do need to think on it. Think, meditate, suck at the word of God until it reminds you how good he is. When you're reminded how good he is, well, then it's quite easy, or it's easier to throw off envy, malice, deceit, hypocrisy. When you remember how good he is, well, then it's easier to love. So love deeply from the heart. Some some here would say, yeah, I've been loved deeply from the heart. It's wonderful. Some of you would say, well, I'm, not sure I'm, I'm not sure I've known that. Some would have to say, I've never done that. I've never been, I've never trusted God enough to give of myself here and now. I just want to hedge my bets a little bit. I trust God a bit. I trust myself a lot. And that means I can't give of myself to others. I mean, there'd be varied experiences. Love deeply from the heart. If you're a Christian, God has given you the power to do that. He's not asking you to do something impossible. He's placed in you a seed of hope. Now, nurture that seed. Grow that seed. Amplify that seed by going to the word of God and knowing how good he is. As we know the Lord's goodness, the hope within us grows. We're able to love. It's simple. We need his help. Don't try and whisk it up on your own. You shove the word of God in and it'll whip up your hope before you know it. Crave it so we can love one another deeply. Let's pray together.
A loving father, what, a, what an enormous difference between the simplicity of the words, love one another deeply, and the complex nature of what it means to work that out. And yet at heart we know what it means. It means we give of ourselves. We make ourselves less. We go without in order to give others more. So Father, would we be those who are willing to pay the cost of loving others because we have a clear hope in you, because we know that you're good and so are able to give of ourselves and love one another deeply. Father, we we pray for us as a church that there would be many more like that second century philosopher who would look upon the church, even our church, and say, they love one another deeply. That is very striking. I want to know their God. Father, would you do it for the praise of your name? Amen.